0: Welcome to Exploring Arizona Life Science Research and Biodiversity with the Tree of Life web project. Visit podcasts at towweb.org for learning materials to accompany this episode and to find out how to contribute to the series. I'm Lisa Schwartz, Tow Learning Materials Editor. This podcast features a lecture for middle and high school teachers on reconciliation ecology by renowned ecologist Dr. Mike Rosenzweig, a professor at the University of Arizona's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. The lecture was brought to teachers at a special symposium presented by the Tree of Life Web Project, the UA Libraries, and the Tucson Girup Project. Due to the lecture's length, we split it up into two parts. This is part two. Dr. Rosenzweig now elaborates on the possibilities provided by Reconciliation Ecology.
1: It is defined as inventing, establishing, and maintaining new habitats Not just making things look green so they fool our eyes, but making them look green to the plants and animals that we'd like them to support. We're not talking about attracting the birds. We're talking about giving the birds a place where they can make a living. We're not talking about the kinds of things uh, that are are generally spoken of as greening the world. Um, We're talking about things for which we don't have the research done in many cases. But we do have it done in some cases, and I've got lots and lots and lots of examples and I've actually written a book about some of these examples, but I wanted to bring some of them to your attention um, that have to do with things around here. This is is on the red list of American, American red list of species. It is a, a, a cactus with an extraordinary strategy for getting along while it's rare. And it lives in an area of about 50 miles on a side, just barely getting in, perhaps, in northern Sonora. Just barely. This is a southern Arizona specialty. And wherever it is, it's rare. But this plant has found a way to live in, rare, in, in a rare circumstance, and, and, you know, if there were time, I'd love to talk to you about just this plant, the Pima pineapple cactus. It would be great. But it's outside of the city, where nobody ever sees it, really, unless you're a biologist going to look for it. It's it's a plant that sort of hides in the rocks of the ridges in the in the semi-arid desert south of here. Um, I've never seen one. Now I've never gone out looking for it, but I've never seen one of these plants. Meanwhile, last Thursday, I went to the first board meeting of the Biosphere 2, because The Alliance for Reconciliation Ecology is going to be doing some work on their land. And I'm walking in a campus that was built, thank God, by Columbia University and not by the University of Arizona or any other organization of the state of Arizona. Gorgeous architecture. The students, I understand, loved living there the year they lived there. And then Columbia threw it away. changed administrations and threw it away. Now we got it. So I'm walking around there in the middle of this board meeting and it is so sterile. I couldn't find a, I couldn't find a house sparrow to watch. There were no flowers. There were no butterflies. There were no insects. They had somehow managed to take this huge 30-acre foot and stomp on the ground right in our desert, just over the line in Pinal County. We don't have to do that. The place was surrounded by luxury in terms of life. All kinds of, of shrubs that are native here, Dean Reese told me that he had seen uh, one day in the fairly recent past, he'd seen Quattamundi around the place. He'd never seen a Quattamundi before, except in the zoo. But they're out there, and along with an immense other things. But we, in our wisdom, had figured out a way to sterilize those 30 acres. It was unbelievable. We don't have to do that. And we have hundreds of examples now from all over the world that teach us how not to do it in particular cases. And one of those comes from Tucson. Uh, this is a map of the area, and all those little dots are the Tucson bird count, which is now five years old, with an army of citizen scientists. Not people who are going out getting just educated about birds. They are doing that. But people who, through their education, are actually turning around and contributing to the data pool that we need to save those species. That's what's going on with the Tucson bird count. These, each one of those dots is actually a line, a census tract, and one of the volunteers takes it under his or her wing during a breeding, the breeding month in the spring and, and goes through with a certain protocol and takes data that we then can transfer. Um, uh, to our data bank and analyze by comparing it with very good aerial photography, resolution down to one meter. We'll tell you what plants are growing in your front lawn, if you like, um, and satellite imagery as well. And we, get, we wind up with, for example, and you can go online and do this, too. Everybody knows that's a cactus ran. I hope, as soon as he shuts out. You can go on to www.tucsonbirds.org, which is actually sitting in my lab over there. Somebody asked about Hal. That's Hal, tucsonbirds.org. And you you can pull up maps like this and pictures like that. This happens to be the distribution of the cactus wren in the city of Tucson. And here's our footprint. It's a lot bigger than Columbia's. But you can see that cactus wrens don't do very well in the center of the city. Why should that be? They're so adaptable. They're not afraid of us. They eat anything practically, why should that be? Um, And so we look and find places where they do live with us. Those are the big red dots, especially, also the little ones. There are less of them there. Um, And then we make analyses like this. This is Will Turner's work, uh, which shows the effect of of human habitat types on different species of birds. Uh, I don't have the cactus wren here, but let's look at Gamble's quail, which is that yellow line at the very top. And what does this graph say? It says that if you give Gamble's quail a neighborhood with about 10 percent desert scrub cover, and a neighborhood is a radius of a football field, you give them that much, that's all, 10 percent, and you're going to get as many Gamble's quail as if you get, as, as if you had a whole place full of desert. They're happy. That's what they need. And so we are developing recipes. We don't have enough yet, but we have some, which will enable enable neighborhood associations to come and and say, okay, what do you got for us? And we'll say, well, you could have one of these and one of those. Do you want some pyroloxias? Do you want some gambles quail? Do you want some ash-throated flycatchers? We know how to do that now, too. Here's what you do in your neighborhood. You don't have to leave your house. You certainly don't have to burn it down but you can make it live again. And I think we can do the same sorts of things for butterflies. I know we can do it for wildflowers with the help of the botanical garden here. Um, and so the alliance is going to be developing these recipes in, uh, in, with the cooperation of people to to turn all of eastern Pima County into a laboratory for reconciliation ecology, to, 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 to look at not only the new communities that are being built, but also how we can retrofit the old communities and make them live again with the kind of abundance um, of species that they once had. Uh, Here's another case. This one's not quite done, but it will be in a a month or two. The Tucson Hummingbird Project, again an army of about 100 volunteers, this time not going out in the community, but setting up experiments in their backyards. Why not schoolyards, by the way? And the experiments are are controlled, and they have taught us the great importance of hummingbirds fighting with each other within a species for determining where they can live in the city. And it turns out that we think we can manipulate their habitat to make it possible for the four common species of hummingbirds in the city to live almost everywhere. Anywhere a neighborhood wants to have Costa's hummingbirds, anywhere a neighborhood wants to bring its black chins back, they used to be all over, they're very rare now, we think we know what to tell them to do. Tuamok Hill itself is a laboratory. It's the oldest in the world in a very important way. There is no other laboratory that has identified individual plants that have been followed since 1903. It is the oldest working ecological, outdoor ecological laboratory in the world. And it is now being surrounded by the city. Can we preserve that human use, which is research, in the face of the pressures of the city? And how do we do that? People like to walk on Tumamac Hill. How can we let that go on at the same time? Lots of interactions that we're going to be having with, the, with the, uh, the developers and the politicians of both the county and the city that will help to answer those questions. And I don't know how the answers are going to look, but we'll find them, because I'm sure that there are ways, in fact, to do that. Uh, there are other patterns. There's just one more I want to talk to you about, uh, and, and that one is that it turns out that when a, a, a place, especially in the West, begins to stomp hard on life by reengineering habitats in stupid ways, that that place carefully manages to exclude some plots of ground where rich people can buy homes and live, whether it's in Germany or Tucson or Italy or in Japan. Rich people spend their money on nature, on surrounding themselves with nature. They don't go to national parks. To see nature, they either they might take a vacation to a national park to see a different kind of nature than there is around their house. But as, as one uh, woman once told me, to, you know it's it's great. I get up every every morning and I look out at the lake and the forest that I that uh, my husband and I bought, and it's like being on vacation every day. That's the kind of experience that we could have again. But. Right now, the only people who have it are very rich people. And so reconciliation ecology will allow us to produce some environmental justice for poorer people because it will bring methods to them. It already has. And we could look at some examples. It will bring methods to them where it helps to support not only their jobs, but also gives them a way to bring their neighborhoods back from the sterility in which they are now trapped because they don't have the money to buy a home in the foothills. Um, We have a a lot of work to do, and uh, while we do it, uh, I certainly hope that we're going to be able to do two things. We're going to be able to count on you for help, and we're also going to be able to convince you that it's a great place, that the Hill is a great place. To bring your students, to see what's going on, don't do it yet, we're not set up. Uh, To see what's going on and to participate so that your guys and gals, uh, at least when they get to the point of being in high school, can join the army of the citizen scientists who are going to make this happen. Because if we have to rely on governments to hire all the specialists to do this work, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. There isn't enough money in the world. The basic idea is very simple. And I'll just leave you uh, with our motto, which is having, having our land and sharing it, too. Um, and our strategy, I can't see it here because of the display. But let's see what that... No, that's not going to help us. Now, the interaction between my gadget and, and this thing has turned something off. Not important. Um, the basic strategy is uh, very, very much. A strategy of doing conservation to make the future feel like the past. Feel like the past. It will be very different from the past, but we'll be able to enjoy it again, and we'll be able to experience nature again, and we won't be afraid of it, and we won't be cut off from it, and because we are not, we'll be able to have an immense diversity, save an immense diversity of plants and animals um, all over the world. And with that I'm free to answer any questions you might have or you've got other things on your agenda, I don't know, but Is it one of your biggest threats up there changing the fire the regime due to the invasive exotic grasses On Tumamuk, I am told that. I am told that. It's not my field. Um, and Yeah, but well, that's a mountain. Um, we do, do we do do control. We do we do our best to pull things out, and lots of people help already. Uh, it's the the best way to get rid of an exotic species is never to let it in. Uh, but we are looking at a, at a grass that was not only allowed in, but it was encouraged to be brought in for cattle for cattle food to make ranges better, et cetera, what and. Um, they're, they're, oh God! I'm, I'm just I'm biting my tongue because there's so much to say. You're asking really deep and important questions. I'll give you a couple of ex cathedra answers. You don't have to believe them, but I do. Okay. One fragmentation of the landscape is not as important for the preservation, or, or it's not as a very important assault on the preservation of diversity. It doesn't do very much. We've got good data. Uh, to show that, and we've got the math as well. And, and that's true at all kinds of scales, which I wouldn't have believed 10 years ago. Um, corridors are important for species often that migrate. So individual species may need those corridors, absolutely. But in general, it's remarkable. Um, we don't see an effect of fragmentation. The problem with fragmentation that that fooled people is, what happens if you take a landscape and you say you've got a square mile and it's all native, natural stuff, and then you start breaking it up. Well, how do you break it up? Well, you take some of it away. You put a road here, you put a reservoir there, you put a housing development over here. So what you're really doing is you're decreasing the area. As soon as you get rid of the signal of area, all of a sudden you can't find any effect of fragmentation. Gene flow is another question, and, and um, a lot of people are worried about it. I look at it this way. If we can't save the species, then we won't save their genes. Uh, and it may be that I am taking the threat of genetic restriction uh, less seriously than I should, but I can tell you for sure that the first thing I just said is right. If the species is extinct, then all their genes are extinct, and if what we have to do to keep the species alive is to to put it out in lots of little isolates, then that's what we have to do. Now, New Zealand has done that, and and New Zealand has saved a substantial fraction of its native avifauna. It it even has gotten to the point now where it creates what it calls mainland islands by taking fences and poisons and creating places which are barriers for non-native species. Uh, and, and then going out and, and getting small populations of things that are threatened other places and, m- and moving individuals into these mainland islands to save them. Uh, it also has a nice a archipel- couple of archipelagos of tiny islands where it's done this too. I've been on one of them. It's just, it's, you get into a ferry and you go a mile offshore and land on a little island. And it's, it's like you're in a time machine. You've just been in a time machine, and you're back 150 years, and there are birds. You see birds and plants that are nowhere else. So that's my point. They're not as afraid of genetic um, uh, limitation on the, diver- on the genetic heterogeneity as they are of losing the species themselves. And they're doing very, very well. And, and again, mathematically, what will happen is, yeah, there'll be a very high rate of extinction on those islands, but well, that's not a problem if you've got 100 islands and you're on top of it. You lose the species here, you just bring it off from somewhere else, which is what they do. It's a very successful program. It's over 40 years old. They're way ahead of us. Okay? You're going to think about coming and helping. Uh, sorry? Boy, I sure hope we're going to get the kind of publicity that we need. I am promised it. Um, I hope that there will be a time where you can't stand to turn the television on because there's another story about the Alliance for Reconciliation Ecology in Tumamonk Hill. That's the goal. Uh, The the newspapers are always complaining about how the university doesn't reach out to the community. Uh, Well, here's a case where we are. We really, really are in a very serious way. And we'll see what the newspapers think when they actually see it. Oh, so glad you asked. I can't believe I didn't say it. Um, Just west of the center of town, there are two hills. One of them's got a big A on it. You've seen that. Just north of that is a hill with a bunch of radio and television transmitters on it, okay? That's us. Halfway up the hill, there's a road that goes up the hill, which you're allowed to drive on at in, in, in restricted hours, and you're allowed to walk there also at restricted hours. Um, and about halfway up the hill is a set of buildings, one of which was put together in 1903. It's still there. And it isn't even close to the oldest structure on the hill. The oldest human structures on the hill are so old we don't know how old they are. They're at least 1,000 years old. Um, they're the oldest things in the city. There, there, were, there was a time when people lived there. That's where the ancient Tucsonans lived. Um, and, and so you're more than welcome, even now, before we get anything organized, if you haven't ever gone up there, you turn on the television and you see the weather. some of the weather reports. They'll have, they'll have cameras, and they're looking out over the whole city. That's where they are. They're up on the top of the hill. That's not my website. (laughs) Does that answer the question? Yes. Oh, yes, we do. We definitely do. And there is a guy who was a graduate student with a friend of mine and who I worked with a little bit, who's at Columbia University, (laughs) who has actually been interested in putting together a reconciliation ecology website. And And we'll do that. Right now, we don't have a proper computer line. I mean, there's, there, there, the guy who put it in is a, is, um, uh, works for USGS as a scientist. And at, at some point 25 years ago or 20 years ago, he said, we've got to have a computer line up here. And he went through some old sewer lines. He dragged cable up through some old sewer lines. We're still using that. You, you
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, you yeah, know I've know. talked to the people who, do, who are doing that up, 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 um, in Canada. The, they're, most of them are based up there, actually, and they are so excited about what they're doing. Yeah,
0: this is actually our business, so,
1: but, but, but I think it's the same thing, but never mind. Okay. It's, it's, these are really, really dedicated people. My, my problem is this, and it's, it's personal and it's scientific. Um, Ed Wilson is sort of my intellectual uncle. I met Ed Wilson in 1962 over in southeastern Arizona when we were doing field work there. And the the children of my major professor, Robert MacArthur, used to call him Easter Ed. In Those days, he hadn't hadn't won any Pulitzer Prizes. So we knew him, and, and most people did not. He's about given up. He believes, and he's told me this, that the best thing that he in his generation and me and mine and the next generation of ecologists and evolutionists can do is record what it is we are about to lose. I don't think that's right. from your lips to God's ears <laughs> I, I'll Although I will tell you really honestly we don't need 100 million dollars Well
0: yeah but it's being spent
1: as Yeah but they'll so but they'll spend it. I mean there are a lot of a lot of people that I know are very very good at spending lots of money. <laughs> um and I'm not, never have been. Uh, uh, I was brought up in the in the school that believed that you could do good science with it, it, chewing gum and it, string. some
0: of the tools they're building anyway.
1: Yeah. I I don't want to be a naysayer, but the the answer is we've got a lot of good reconciliation ecology under our belt. This world, I'm not me, but the world as a whole. And it does take tools, but but it t- and it does take dedication, and it does take money, and it does take science. Um, but let me give you an idea of the expense involved. All right, one of my one of my friends, who's a, probably the world's greatest reconciliation ecologist, is Reuven Yosef who runs the International Bird Observatory at the tip of Israel and has saved personally a hundred species of birds with his efforts. That's another story. He did his Ph.D. thesis at Ohio State University working in southern Florida on a ranch, a working cattle ranch that belongs to the American Museum. Problem, we are losing the, the family lineity in the world. That's shrikes. Loggerhead shrikes around here, other species of shrikes elsewhere. Uh, Reuben is the one who figured out why shrikes impale their prey on thorns. It turns out to be a mating display. Only the males do it, and only in the springtime when they're mating. You know, why didn't Aristotle figure that out? Took Reuven. Reuven wants to save them. They're, they're in trouble. Wherever they are, they're in trouble. And so his Ph.D. dissertation was to do the natural history work required to save the loggerhead shrike. He studied things like How high do they sit when they're about to pounce on prey? Do they ever do anything but pounce on the prey? It turns out, no. That's the way they hunt. They always jump down on something. They always jump down from about three or four feet up, maybe five feet up, never higher, never lower. They always jump down about six or eight feet away, or maybe ten, never farther. All of this makes sense to somebody who does any kind of optimization theory, but it was great natural history. Once he had that figured out, he mapped the cattle ranch that he was working in, and he found out these posts, these perches that they needed to hunt were scarce. And they left us, in his words, the cattle ranch like a Swiss cheese. Lots and lots of grasshoppers to eat, but no perches from which to pounce. He went to the lumber yard. He bought some steaks. He put them in the holes in the Swiss cheese and tripled the population of loggerhead shrikes on the ranch. And That method then gets exported to Switzerland with a different species that hunts from stone piles. And Somebody noticed that after the Second World War, when the farmers in Switzerland got rich and they could afford tractors to haul off their stones, they manicured their farms. They took the stone piles away. The shrikes had no place to pounce from, so they brought the stone piles back and the shrikes came with them. And in the same thing has worked on another species of strike in South Africa, et cetera. I don't think it took $50,000, the whole, this whole PhD process, to produce that result.
0: But what, what's going to take the money is taking this guy and cloning him, going into the schools, getting the retired
1: people at home to get engaged with your project. That's yes. What's going to take yes. 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 Yes.
0: <laughs> that's Katya from Tree of Life, and, and part of what we do, what we've been doing at Tree of Life, is just to start to come up with different ways to, to get people involved. I hate to interrupt this conversation because I think it's so important. Um, but some of the podcasts I'm going to be showing you actually feature uh, work that's related to Dr. Rosenzweig, so she's sort of carrying the conversation, and maybe we can talk more about this during dinner as well, because it's definitely something you know that we're all—it's important to all of us.